Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today's show focuses on how best to create mechanisms for outside scrutiny of technology platforms. We've got two segments. The first is with Brandon Silverman, the founder and former CEO of CrowdTangle, an analytics toolset acquired by Facebook in 2016 that permitted academics, journalists, and others to inspect how information spreads on the platform. And the second segment is a panel provided courtesy of the nonpartisan policy organization, the German Marshall Fund of the United States. On June 15th, GMF hosted Opening the Black Box, Auditing Algorithms for Accountable Tech, featuring Anna Linhart, a senior technology policy advisor, for Representative Lori Trahan, a Democrat from Massachusetts, Deborah Raji, a fellow at the Mozilla Foundation and a PhD candidate in computer science at UC Berkeley, and Mona Sloan, a sociologist affiliated with NYU. The panel was moderated by Ellen P. Goodman, a professor at Rutgers Law School and a visiting senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund in the United States. First up, my interview with Brandon Silverman. My name is Brandon Silverman. I have no title and no affiliation at the moment, but I uh, was one of the co-founders and CEO of CrowdTangle up until about six months ago. Now mostly dad and then also a volunteer advocate for transparency. So for the handful of my readers or listeners who do not know what CrowdTangle is or who you are, can you just give the quickest possible history of CrowdTangle uh, and your role in it? So I, along with one of my kind of good friends from college, started CrowdTangle in 2000, 2011, and uh, we were a social analytics tool. I mean, originally we were actually trying to be a community organizing tool, but that failed miserably. Uh, and we ended up building a social analytics tool and we ended up getting acquired by Facebook in uh, late 2016. So we joined Facebook in 2017. And what we did was make it easy for newsrooms to be able to see what was happening on social media, mostly to help them be able to tell their stories and find an audience on Facebook. But over time, we became kind of one of the main ways that people could look inside the black box of Facebook and see the biggest stories, the latest trends, who might be responsible for a certain narrative, who posted it first, et cetera. It was kind of a powerful way to look at organic content on the platform. And we went not just from working with newsrooms, but over time to working with nonprofits, human rights activists, academics, researchers, et cetera. And I left about six months ago. CrowdTangle is still around, but the team that used to support it and run it is no longer there. So yeah, that's, that's one part of the history. So what I would encourage my listeners to do is go and read much of the excellent reporting on CrowdTangle uh, and on the consternation it created inside the company about transparency uh, and that sort of thing. I won't ask you, Brandon, to rehash all of that, but there's certainly a history there that's worth my listeners looking into. Um, but let's let's look ahead on some level. Let's look ahead to what perhaps can be done to make uh, not just Facebook, but perhaps all of the social media and information ecosystem slightly more transparent. At least that's the the dream, right? There's a kind of, I guess, consensus at this point among researchers, civil society groups, uh, other advocates that, uh, and lawmakers, I would add, in most um, Western governments, that some more insight, some more peek under the hood of these social platforms would 
help us to address the harms. Um, you clearly believe that. How do you think of that? Why is transparency researcher access so important? So I think there's a few angles on it, but I think in some ways the biggest one is that it has been 10 years, it's been over 10 years since social media has been a fairly prominent part of society and the world and countries all over the globe. And we still know way too little about how it impacts society. And that includes everything from the well-being of individuals to is it a net good or net bad for liberal democracy? Uh, does it enhance the diversity of uh, speech or does it entrench existing powers? Like there are all these really critical and important questions and we just don't know the answer to a lot of them. And instead what we have is a lot of observations, anecdotes, or in some cases leaked documents from certain platforms, obviously the Facebook papers, but we're trying to cobble together all these different things to understand more about what it's doing to us as a society and individuals from a lot of places that just aren't giving us a fully robust and comprehensive picture. And so I think there's just this, there's this growing, I think, realization that we should be under trying to understand this stuff better. And it's not going to happen through voluntary efforts from the platforms. And so there's a lot of regulators and lawmakers, academics, civil society folks trying to figure out how to create kind of responsible ways to require data from the platforms in a way that we can make progress on understanding some of this stuff. And then, you know, I mean, the only thing I'll add is, you know, through, I spent 10 years leading CrowdTangle and I got to see firsthand some of the power that making this data available in responsible ways can have. And so we had examples of everything from, you know, uh, election protection groups helping protect elections in places like Ethiopia and Sri Lanka and Brazil and Myanmar in the U.S., we had human rights activists helping prevent real world violence. Uh, we had in some cases ways in which civil society could hold platforms accountable for what they said they were doing, but weren't always kind of living up to. So we saw firsthand what that could look like. And I think that's partly why I got how I became a radicalized on uh, the idea of the power of transparency. Yeah, I think those are for me, the, the, the highest level things that I like to be. And, the, and maybe I'll add just one more. I mean, I could go on for a while about this, but I think one of the other things is uh, it is a very convenient talking point. In the moments of like the most intense public scrutiny of a lot of platforms and large tech companies, they will frequently roll out how much they believe in transparency. But there's very little kind of accountability or awareness of like how much are they really doing. And so, you know, it was like when, you know, when Jack Dorsey resigned from Twitter and he had his resignation Twitter tweet thread, literally the very last line in the very last tweet was, I always wanted Twitter to be the most transparent company in the world. And like they just over and over you see that. But then the degree to which any of them live up to it just completely varies. Sometimes it ebbs and flows. Sometimes it doesn't exist at all. And so I think there also just needs to be more rigor and more industry norms around something everybody clearly believes in uh, and wants, but we haven't just haven't made enough progress on. Really quickly, when you think about the existing big social platforms, like Facebook or YouTube or TikTok or Twitter, how do you kind of rank them in terms of their current status with regard to being open to outside research or outside scrutiny? So what I would say is I would say a couple of things. So first is um, transparency can mean a lot of different things. And so I think in some ways it's useful to like be specific. What sort of transparency are we talking about? I think the one I've, I certainly feel like I know the best and spent the most time in is like, is data sharing and letting kind of the outside world have some degree of access to some of the metrics and data and contents on the platform. But I, so I think one is always important to like parse out how complicated and diverse it looks like. But secondly, you know, I think Twitter is the best 
and have historically been the best. And they've been so much better at it than, than the rest of the networks that for a long time, there would be all of these kind of like public discussions about social media and the re- what did the research show? And what they really meant was what did the research show about Twitter? Because it was the only place anybody, anybody get, get any data. But that being said, like there are also things about Twitter that make it easier. Um, there is far less privacy sensitive data relative to a platform like Facebook that has, you know, requires people to put in their, you know, their actual information and private photos and all that stuff. So Twitter is the best, but there are also ways in which it's easier for them. I think the worst is, you know, I would probably, you know, TikTok does essentially no functional transparency at all, really. YouTube, I think is a little better than TikTok, but not a ton. Um, and they've historically been pretty close off to outside research. And then Meta, you know, Facebook, uh, and then Reddit, I actually think it's pretty good. You know, we had a really robust partnership with Reddit. And so I would put them uh, in the Twitter category. And then I think Facebook kind of falls somewhere in the middle. Um, they've done some generally like industry leading stuff. But, you know, I think the, when I talk about Facebook, I think the one important asterisk on any conversation around them around transparency is they're unique. You know, they are 3 billion people who use their platform. You know, I think it is, Twitter is a fraction of the size and they are, you know, Facebook is also in a lot of developing countries, essentially the internet. And so I think they also, I think Facebook also just have a a particular level of responsibility that none of the other platforms have right now. Um, And so I would put their, the responsibility they have higher than all the rest. And so the expectations are equally as high. So you mentioned that one of the things you're doing is helping to advocate around transparency measures that are being pursued uh, in Europe and in, in the U.S. And, you know, on some level, in Europe especially, uh, their lawmakers intend to push the hand of the platforms and to require that they're open to outside scrutiny. And there, there's you know, provisions in the DSA. There are people who are thinking about how to do that in the context of, of GDPR. Um, and I know you've been a part of those conversations I guess from this point, looking forward, what do you think is the kind of timeline here? Uh, when are the first research projects going to kick off that uh, potentially are you know minted under this new capacity that Europe is going to create? I don't know when this will be published, but we're, you know, you and I are talking right now on Thursday morning, June 16th. And actually this morning was a huge announcement about they finally released the official language for the code of practice on disinformation, which is one of kind of the three pillars of data sharing and transparency that are going to be coming under the umbrella of the DSA more broadly. You know, one question is when I I think partly the beginning of the timeline is going to be when the DSA itself also finally gets released and officially codified. But within the code of practice, which mandates some of this stuff, uh, there's essentially a seven month timeline by which platforms have to have begun meeting some of the new requirements that are built in that they, whichever one's signatory have agreed to. And there's also, a, to my understanding, there's language in there that says also, if you have anything available now, you should start doing making that available now. Um, but if there are new metrics and new data points that you haven't collected, you have seven months to essentially start getting those in order and start making them available. That being said, there's also one of the things coming out of all this, you know, all this work is the development and funding of an entirely new agency that essentially is going to oversee a lot of the hard work. So for instance, one of the big challenges and all this stuff is how do you vet which researchers get access to the particularly privacy sensitive stuff? You know, in the process of trying to write some of this stuff, there were attempts to codify who should and shouldn't get access and put that bill. And it was 
so complicated that ultimately they realized that they need an entire agency to actually run that entire thing. So they're like, well, let's start and fund an agency. So that's, that's going to slow down that piece of it because they have to start it and hire it and yada, yada. But ultimately that body will do it. I think it was probably the right path forward as well. But so I think you will start to see some research in the next year, but I think it's going to be a slow process for some of the really more in-depth longitudinal stuff to get out. Um, but, you know, there, there, there was language that is more crowd tangly in terms of public data and things like that. And there's a universe in which you start to see some more work around that in, in a shorter time frame. So let's talk a little bit about the U.S. context as well. I know you've been involved in some of the discussions around the Platform Accountability uh, and Transparency Act, which would also establish a kind of office, a Platform Accountability and Transparency Office within the Federal Trade Commission that would also, as I understand it, kind of work with the National Science Foundation um, and maybe address some of these issues about, you know, who gets access and what projects get uh, approved and, you know, what are the potential risks and how do you mitigate those? What's the status of of this particular proposal uh, in the Senate? And what do you think are its chances? Um, Yeah, so I'm not a professional politician, so I will put out my predictions, but like, you know, there are people who, who... watch this stuff a lot closer than I do. So, you know, I think the biggest challenge right now in any legislation in Congress is just the midterms. Uh, The closer we get to the midterms, the likelier that meaningful stuff stops happening, Um, especially I think if you have one party who feels like they're probably going to kind of coast into new majorities if they don't rock the ship too much. So I think the biggest challenge is the midterms. You know, I think in terms of PADA as a standalone bill, if I, you know, my my sense right now is it's probably not going to get introduced formally given how little time is left. And I think the likely the likeliest path at this point is actually that pieces of PADA are added to another piece of legislation that is able to make it through. And, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about Amy Klobuchar's antitrust bills, uh, antitrust bill. And I wouldn't be surprised if they try and attach some of this transparency stuff to that, to that if it gets passed. I mean, one of the ironic but challenging things about transparency, and you know, we I talked to a lot of different congressional members and Senate members over like the last uh, few months, and you know, everyone supports transparency, but in some ways, that's also a challenge for it because it's not a particularly galvanizing political. Um, lightning rod where people, you know, people are not, nobody has constituents who are beating their door down around more data sharing. And so it means getting on the docket is hard, just relative to other people's priorities. You know, so we had a lot of people supported it, but it was just like, I, I have other things that are more critical to me. So I, but you know, the good news is maybe that makes it easy to attach to another piece of bill. And so I think that right now for getting something through this cycle is the likeliest path. But one last thing I'll, I'll just say though, is like, I, I genuinely believe there's a lot of value to even working on this legislation, even if it doesn't get past this cycle. You know, there was a lot of interest and awareness generated through the hearings. I think there are new funders thinking about getting more involved in the space. I think there are like genuine challenges in getting the legislation right at like a detailed level. And, you know, there were moments when I was helping like write some of the actual legislative texts. And I was like, I probably shouldn't be writing legislative texts. Like, you know, but I, and, and then also there's, I still think negotiations to be had among different parts of civil society around this stuff. Like, you know, um, in the Senate hearing, you could literally watch like myself and Jim Harper from AEI, who's like way more kind of protective of, or, or thoughtful about like the first amendment concerns. Like we were literally almost like negotiating how to balance those in real time during the hearing. 
And I think there's more work to be done on figuring out what the trade-offs are and where the privacy community is comfortable, where the First Amendment community is comfortable, et cetera. And so I think even like in some ways having more time to get some of that stuff right is also not the worst thing in the world. As I understand it, you were also involved in, um, or at least an advisor to some of the individuals that worked with the European Digital Media Observatory to put together a kind of, well, a proposed code of conduct around independent researcher access. That was a very detailed document. It even had, you know, templated forms uh, and ideas about, you know, particular protocols for how approvals might work. It made me wonder, though, a little bit about how industry still gets a say in what types of projects get done or don't get done. You know, even in the idea for the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, there's still some notion there, of course, that industry um, has input into and influence on what types of research projects get approved, right? Um, How do you avoid industry capture in this? How do you avoid, you know, the companies not permitting certain projects because they think they're not in their interest to pursue. Yeah. And I should maybe just stay out out of the gate for the code of conduct. The real kind of person who uh, was the real champion and did the real hard work around this stuff was uh, Rebecca Trumbull, who's at GW and helped shepherd that entire process and was like a massive effort and lift, but a huge contribution to the whole space. And so um, I helped a little bit, but like the level of work some other people did around that was gargantuan, especially Rebecca. So you know, I think your question is a good one and also partly like why this stuff is so hard. Um, and I actually worry, you know, in a lot of ways, there's a huge power imbalance the, at the moment. The status quo is one in which the platforms can decide completely on their own what they do and don't want to do. And so you have some entities doing a little bit and dipping their toes in the water, but maybe not giving it the resources it really needs. And then you have others who are just completely stonewalling anything, which is why I think ultimately hoping for more robust voluntary efforts is like not going to be the answer and what, or for in American political parlance, like the market's not going to solve this. And so what you need is some sort of mandatory requirements. Um, I think in some ways, if you had those mandatory requirements, some of the platforms would actually like be glad that that happens. Cause I think, you know, one of the challenges we had a crowd tangle is uh, we were an example of a voluntary transparency effort that, Facebook was doing that almost no other platform was doing. And one of the challenges was like, well, why are we putting ourselves out on a limb when nobody else is? And so I think if you can create a level playing field where everybody has to be held to the same bar, in some ways, I think some platforms get great where we've been waiting for that and support that. But to your question around regulatory capture. So I'm not sure I totally know the answer to that question, to be honest. I think probably the best answer is whatever regimes are set up need to have a a handful of the following characteristics. One is they need to be flexible. Like we can't enshrine commandments that are written in stone right now on how to do this because the industry is just changing too quickly. And so one, I think you need to build in some sort of flexibility into whatever systems are are set up. I think two is you need to be mindful of some of the totally reasonable concerns that the platforms have around, you know, there are GDPR mandates some privacy things that make it really freaking hard to do, to give some of the data you want to external people. And like simply waving that away is not like a sustainable long-term answer. Um, You know, there are at times genuine trade secrets and feasibility, you know, issues, but I think ultimately what you need to do is find a balance where some of the decision-making is just taken out of the hands of the companies. And because the voluntary stuff is just not yielded the data we need over like last 10 years. 
in some ways, what I worry less about than industry capture is more industry stonewalling. It is very hard to write in specific language exactly what data you want and need because the platforms are so different. What you might need two years from now might be vastly different from what you need right now. And so there is, I think, one of the things we're just going to have to watch out for in the EU and then hopefully at some point in the US and other places is our platforms genuinely trying to uh, meet the spirit of the regulations or are they simply meeting the letter? And if you meet the letter, there are ways in which some of this can, can be way less useful than I think what everyone is hoping for. And that's not to mention if they want, you know, go, going through the courts to litigate every single possible privacy nuance, uh, every single trade secret potential conflict, every single feasibility one. And, and so I think, you know, I think this is going to, it's going to take a while to figure this out. Some of it will absolutely be litigated here in the U.S. It is very difficult to require data sharing without bringing up First Amendment issues, given the state of the judicial system and the courts, who would consider that stuff compelled speech if it weren't written really well. So I think there's one of the big questions is how much the platforms are going to actually like fight against this stuff. And um, that's, you know, and they're going to at some point. And so it's just going to be part of the next chapter in the story. So I do want to talk about the temporal dimension of this. You know, I mean, some people have pointed out, well, it'd be great to have all this access to data and to see how these platforms work. But the reality is, you know, you're going to take a snapshot in time. A lot of the time, a lot of research studies will will take a kind of approach that is time bounded in some way. Um, and maybe the platform is completely different by the time your results come out. Maybe the algorithm's already been changed or the interface has already been changed or some other you know, variable has, has been adjusted such that the results aren't even relevant anymore. Um, how do you think these regimes can prepare for that? Yeah, I, I could not agree more. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving jazz hands over here for our, you know, for um, non-video formats. But um, yeah, so I think the answer is a couple of things. First is you need several different types of transparency. You need several different layers of data that you are providing with different audiences and different types of data and different uh, structures for who gets access and when. I think about it in some ways like a funnel. At the top, you can have essentially the widest possible audience. So it's, a, you know, it's an inverse pyramid. At the top, it's the widest. And that, that is data that you can share with essentially the public. And so we have versions of that right now that are mostly in reports aggregated statistics, you know, Facebook and Google and some others do these basically like community standard enforcement reports where they say we took down X number of this and Y number of that. That's data sharing and that's available to the public writ large. Um, and there's essentially no privacy concerns. CrowdTangle was kind of a layer down. Most of it was not available to the public writ large, but it was available to like essentially any organization kind of working in the general public interest space from newsrooms to you know, human rights organizations to academics. That data had a little bit of privacy risk, but not much. And what we could also do with that data, because we weren't looking at the entire corpus of everything happening on the platform, we were just looking at a sliver of particularly important influential accounts and content, we could deliver it immediately. It was real time. And so if you were 24 hours out from a major election and you wanted to see if people were spreading voter you know, suppression content, or if you were, you know, there was a shooting somewhere and you wanted to go and see if, you know, any of the violating content was being passed around, you could do all of it in real time. And there's an incredibly important role for like that particular type of data sharing. 
it's for all the reasons you just mentioned, as well as like a ton more. But the platforms move, the platforms change constantly. Content comes and goes insanely quickly. So even if you have data sharing that's like, oh, once a quarter we do something, or even once a week, you will even that constitutes like essentially a historical look back, you know, for how quickly these platforms move. And then at the very bottom of this funnel, for the most narrow portion at the bottom, is you have super privacy dense sensitive data sets that might come from anywhere across the entire corpus of like a platform where they're in a position to share it. And that is the sort of thing where I think you get into more longitudinal, more robust, oftentimes like peer reviewed, you know, the entire, you know, life cycle of doing more traditional academic research. And a lot of that's going to take time. And in some cases that's fine uh, because, you know, I think in you know, some cases it, there might, they might be looking at particular aspects that don't dynamics of a platform that don't change as much. But also there might be things that they, you know, that they also look at that, yeah, by the time it comes out are less relevant than I think they hoped. So I think what you, the, the main answer is you need a variety of different types of data sharing and you need to hopefully kind of combine all those together. Does that create a kind of strange incentive for the platforms to stay ahead of external researchers? Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, for instance, uh, Facebook made a huge tranche of data available to researchers, uh, including Rebecca Trombo and others around the 2020 election. And we haven't yet seen any real publications come out of that project because of the pace of, you know, the research and how long it takes to kind of go through and deal with the massive amount of information and to go through peer review and to go through the various processes. You know, we've got another midterm election coming up here and we, we don't have the benefit of those learnings in the public domain. Um, and it's quite likely that Facebook, you know, has done its own research. It's looked at the numbers itself and it's already implemented uh, a variety of changes that would address whatever results may come from that particular consortium. I guess, I don't know. I'm just kind of imagining this dynamic where the platforms are incented, maybe in a good way, but also maybe in a slightly defeating way uh, to kind of stay ahead of whatever results might come from these transparency efforts. I am not in the consortium that's involved directly in the U.S. 2020 research, but my understanding is that it, some of it is the natural life cycle of doing academic research, but some of the reason we haven't seen anything yet is also because of all the problems we're trying to solve through this legislation, that there are also ways in which Facebook was just not particularly well set up, staffed, resourced. Uh, there were, you know, regulatory stuff they felt, you know, nervous about because it wasn't clear in legislation. But, but I think, so I think that the, the pace of that particular project, I think is, is probably natural academic stuff, but I think a bunch of it is actually because these problems, because we haven't solved and mandated some of these requirements through legislation. And so Facebook just wasn't, didn't have all the systems in place that they should. You know, listen, I think one of the benefits of transparency is that even if no research ever comes out of it, the mere fact that they know they're going to have to be more transparent should actually encourage a bunch of behavioral changes internally around this stuff. And actually, that's why it's such a powerful mechanism. So if it turns out that because they know research is coming, they change a bunch of stuff. I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, that's not the end of the world. So I and, and pardon me for kind of, uh, I guess, you know, pushing a thumb into some of these issues just to kind of think them through a little bit. But I guess there's one last one I'll bring up, which is potential downside of, of transparency. Um, and by the way, I've spilled a lot of ink on tech policy press and in this podcast uh, talking about the benefits of it. So, you know, keep that 
level set, you know, on that. I am very much a, a fan of, of these proposals and very much hope that we will see uh, some of this legislation pass and see, of course, the uh, European um, access, you know, come soon enough. But one of the things that people are so scared about when it comes to social media platforms, of course, is their ability to impact populations at scale, um, potentially to make changes that have far-reaching consequences and change political outcomes and uh, change the nature of discourse. Is there any fear that you have based on either any of the work you're doing around transparency legislation or legal frameworks at the moment, or just your experience of having worked inside of a large social media platform that to some extent kind of more transparency might also mean more common knowledge about the ways in which social media can be used to do some of those things people are afraid of? I have many fears. So I will attempt to go through all of them, but like, I I think there needs to be more, more discussion about this because there are a lot of downsides. There are a lot of potential downsides. And honestly, like one of the challenges is getting this right and trying to avoid as many of them as possible. But I will just start going through them and tell me when to stop before we run out of time. Um, But so I think one, so one is, is simply like writing this legislation and getting it through in a way that is like, in the US that is constitutional is really hard. There are like real First Amendment challenges to requiring private companies to share data. Uh, and if the way the First Amendment is interpreted by a lot of people, especially on the conservative side, is that um, the First Amendment protects both people and corporations' ability to speak, as well as their ability not to speak if they don't want to. And so when you require them to say things, they don't want to say that's considered compelled speech. And there has to be like an overarching public interest reason to do that. And what that interest is, is entirely up to, you know, ultimately the justices that sit on the Supreme Court. And there are very differing opinions on what level of public interest outweighs a corporation's right to not speak. So one is that we could just write a piece of legislation that gets struck down. And then that could set back this entire thing for a long time. So one is I think there's there's one set of harms that are think on just like making progress. And if you don't do it well, it could set back all the efforts. And there's like similar challenges around GDPR and Europe. I think a second set of harms is that, you know, I think there's a real, one of the things you want to avoid is, you know, uh, malicious uses of data that I think don't accomplish the things that those of us who believe in transparency are like the reasons we're in it. And, you know, one of those is enabling more surveillance at like a government level. So one of the questions is, can government, can government get access to this data? And uh, let's say they can, does that outweigh or totally negate the benefits you get from also giving it to academics and researchers? And how do you ma- how do you balance that trade-off? I think a second, a third one I think a lot about is that transparency is not going to solve everything. Like there is no solution to everything. We are social media and internet are around and we are going to be negotiating and debating and figuring out how to make it as healthy and constructive as possible for as long as we're all around. And there'll never be any solution to anything. We're just going to constantly be trying to make it better. When it comes to making more data available, like there is going to be a lot of research and data that's just immediately politicized, you know, and in some cases it will be, you know, misleading political uses of this stuff, but suddenly have the, you know, the, the, the halo of, a, you know, more robust data instead of either like leaked documents or anecdotal stuff. So data can always be politicized, misused, misinterpreted, misled. And the more of it you make available, the more likely people are, are going to be able to do that. Now, I also think for me, the, the counterweight to that is the answer to bad analysis is just like more analysis. And so the bigger the ecosystem of people who can look and debate and negotiate 
can mitigate that, but like there will be totally annoying and frustrating uh, uses of data. And I think that's something we see in almost every field. I think, you know, I think there's also a case to be made that like, you know, the, the privacy community, there are members of the privacy community who I really respect. Part of their overall thesis is that these companies shouldn't be collecting this data at all, let alone be like making it available to anybody else, even if it's in privacy safe ways. And if you enshrine this, what you're actually doing is like giving a like a, a stamp of approval to the fact that they even collect a lot of this stuff that a bunch of people, smart people in society think they should ever collect in the first place. So are you locking in a business model yeah, through kind of some of these efforts? You know, I think the regulatory agencies and bodies themselves could also be politicized as well as like the data itself. And so how do you try and avoid that? Yeah, I could probably go on, but I, I you know, I think these are real, it, it, and, and some of these will 100% happen. In the next six months, assuming we don't see something happen in Congress, what do you think should be the priority for advocates of transparency in the U.S.? You know, I think one of the interesting dynamics of this space is how much everyone loves transparency and everyone agrees with it. So there's almost like you don't need to make the case for it. But I think the bigger gap is making the case about why platforms and other entities who talk about how much they believe in it, like, aren't doing it uh, as much as they should. And I think finding ways to hold platforms more accountable for the delta between what they talk about and what they actually deliver is I think a huge opportunity. Um, and I know there's actually some people working on this as well, including everything from transparency scorecards to other things that I think are gonna, gonna help inform the public. But no, I'm, you know, I, I'm a fundamentally optimistic person and I actually think there's been a lot of phenomenal progress in this whole space over like last six months. And I, it feels to me like the, 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 you know, the tide is flowing in a very clear direction. And it's really just a question of like, how slow it is and how hard it is and how many mistakes we make along the way. Well, an optimistic note's a good place to end. So Brandon Silverman, thank you very much. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Just as there is a focus on the necessity of external insight into social media platforms, there is increasing awareness of the potential harms and discrimination that can result from algorithmic decision-making on all technology platforms. That was the premise for the panel discussion, Opening the Black Box, Auditing Algorithms for Accountable Tech, hosted by the German Marshall Fund on Wednesday, June 15. Here's Rutgers Law Professor and German Marshall Fund Visiting Senior Fellow Ellen P. Goodman to introduce the discussion. Well, we're really excited about this topic, and um, I want to introduce our panelists, and we'll start with some Q&A, and then we're really going to open it up for the panel um, to ask questions, and also we'll save the last 10 minutes um, for the audience to ask questions, and you'll put that in the Q&A. So we have Anna Lenhart, who's an information scientist and senior tech policy advisor to Representative Lori Trahan in the House of Representatives, and she represents um, 
the Tech Corridor outside of Boston. Deb Raji is a computer scientist and Mozilla fellow working on AI accountability mechanisms. And Mona Sloan is a sociologist at NYU working on technology and inequality. Um, so I want everyone to notice the interdisciplinary nature of this panel, and I'm a lawyer. Um, and I think this sort of highlights the interdisciplinary nature of algorithmic audits and how um, when we think about algorithmic audits, we really need to think of them not only in terms of interrogating the tech, the code, the, the um, uh, parameters of algorithms and algorithmic systems, but also the socio-technical um, context in which they operate, including um, the humans who are either in the loop or not in the loop um, in, in implementing uh, algorithms and AI systems. So let me, let's kick this off, Deb, with um, general insights about what are algorithmic audits? And if you can say a little bit about the different kinds of audits, um, which are not always clearly highlighted in, in the policy space. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense um, as a sort of starting point for this discussion, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that the, the term um, algorithmic audits or the term audit used in the algorithmic sort of accountability context has been kind of purposefully loose um, just because of the range of participants that sort of identify as auditors or, or those kind of um, engaging in oversight. So um, in, a in a recent paper with um, Dan Ho at Stanford Law School, we actually dug a little bit more into the range of audit systems that are sort of existing and how this connects with the way that um, auditing has sort of emerged in the algorithmic space. Uh, I think one big taxonomy that we've kind of anchored to is the reality that there's sort of at least two main kind of categories of audit. There's the internal audits, which are executed by internal stakeholders or stakeholders that have some kind of contractual obligation to the audit target. So these are people, um, you know, maybe a consultant or a contractor that's doing an internal audit on behalf of that organization. Um, and they are very focused, internal audits are very focused on compliance objectives and very much aligned with sort of uh, uh, defining the, the criteria for the audit based off of sort of the organizational and institutional criteria. And that's very different from an external, what we call an external audit, which are uh, tend to be third party institutions and definitely uh, have no contractual relationship with the audit target and their objectives are sort of externally defined. So their expectations for the system could be based off of, uh, you know, an external standard or, um, uh, you know, a proprietary standard, but definitely not anchored to anything defined by the institution itself and also not focused on compliance as much as focused on whatever organizational objectives these, these auditors have. Um, and it's often sort of in, in in protection of, of a group that they represent. Um, so that for us was a really helpful uh, dichotomy of sort of internal versus external oversight um, because it defined a lot of the relationship between the audit target and the auditor. And that really helped us uh, with defining all other aspects of the audit and the different sort of methodologies used by the two different groups and the different goals of the two different groups. Um, so that's sort of really the taxonomy that we've anchored to at this point. Um, and yeah, an algorithmic audit in general terms um, would be sort of any kind of inspection or um, external oversight or independent oversight of uh, the deployment of an algorithmic system. Um, and uh, at least in my work, I'm very interested in algorithmic deployment. So meaning that the, the system is either intended to be deployed or integrated into like an actual uh, ecosystem or it's, uh, it's, it's already out there and it's sort of like this post hoc 
situation where we're looking at the system after it's already been deployed. Um, and the, the goal of the audit is to kind of assess or evaluate, you know, how the system behaves in deployment versus sort of the expectations of that system held by the auditor. Um, and the, the kind of definition that I've been using lately as well has been, it's not just necessarily about the evaluation, but it's also about taking that evaluation result and integrating it into some larger process of accountability. Uh, so making sure that the evaluation is not just uh, an assessment or an inspection and you leave it there, but also trying to integrate that assessment into sort of a broader accountability frame where we're, we're actually like changing the system or where there's some kind of consequence as a result of that assessment. Um, and I think that for me is like what shifts it from just, you know, purely sort of QA assessment to an audit where there's, you know, there's consequences as a result of what that evaluation tells us. And so it can actually factor into accountability outcomes for the organizations involved. Yeah, that's that's so important. And I think um, I really appreciate your pointing out that there's sort of an intentional vagueness around algorithmic audit. And I think, you know, one of the reasons is that um, it's almost a desperate, um, you know, sort of Hail Mary that we don't know how to regulate ex ante some of these systems or we don't want to. Um, and so let's just leave it to audits and hope that that sort of achieves substantive goals. And let me turn to Mona about, you know, some of those substantive goals. If you can talk a little bit, and you've done really interesting work, especially on hiring algorithms, how algorithmic audits might fit into some of our substantive um, goals for algorithmic systems. Yeah, thank you, Ellen. And, and thanks, Deb, uh, for that very wonderful setting, the scene. Um, so I think what, what is really important you know, to underline what, what Dab already has said is to think about audits as, as a tool for broader accountability um, agendas and, and processes and thinking about those in terms of not just the whole life cycle of one system or one product, but the, maybe even the, you know, the general genealogy of a whole industry, perhaps even, right? Like, what are we even, what are we even trying to do here? And so the, um, the important bit here, I think, is that we develop an understanding, a shared understanding of audits that are pushing beyond just inspections. And that's something that is really interesting for me as a sociologist, you know, bringing to the table an understanding of what is actually the social kind of um, process that, that underpins an inspection. And that is very often a concern for safety. Um, and and the and the fact that we're measuring something against some sort of standard. Now that's very complicated. And Deb said that that's very complicated when we're when we're looking at that in the context of AI systems, or algorithmic systems, because they constantly evolve. And what's really key here is to find a way to bring together the premise on which a system is kind of built or based with how how it technically works and how these the, the the interplay between the two of them actually can disproportionately disadvantage oppress and harm certain populations in other words it is insufficient to just think about the audit in the traditional sense the traditional social process where it's just an inspect, inspection about a set standard but bring it together with the idea so what what idea is the system actually uh, materializing. And so, for example, in the context of hiring, which is work that I'm doing with um, Julia Stojanovic at NYU, um, we can think about certain ideas of how, for example, or what, what serves as a proxy for um, job performance. And is that idea actually, you know, grounded in actual science? 
is or is that an idea that is pseudoscience essentially what are we actually putting at scale here and we can actually meaningfully bring that together by way of looking at these constructs and looking at how these constructs are operationalized and then assess how this actually performs or how they actually perform in the wild and that is a that is actually an external audit that can be done i'm happy to talk more about that it gets a little kind of into the weeds and geeky but i think that's kind of the the, the way in which i would kind of um, think about audits, AI audits as pushing beyond inspections. Thanks, Mona. I want um, Anna to jump in here and, and talk a little bit about how we can think about these purposes of audits and the role of audits in the policy context. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's great to be here with uh, people I respect so much on these issues. Um, so first, I think I think algorithmic audits are a really important part of a regulatory toolkit for all the reasons already mentioned. They provide a much needed way to, to give oversight to an industry that's incredibly consequential for human and civil rights, um, but also is evolving quite fast, faster than we can get new statute, legal statute written. <laughs> so they're a great sort of way to, to kind of tackle this. Bigger picture, the way I've been thinking about algorithmic audits is sort of as a hub and spoke model, where at the center, you've got these core frameworks, right? So you've got the NIST frameworks, You've got the provisions in the Algorithmic Accountability Act, these really strong risk-based frameworks for assessing risks and algorithms and also ways to mitigate them. Um, but then from Wait, there- Anna, I just wanna yes. stop you for a second, just in case some people aren't familiar with the NIST framework um, and the Algorithmic Accountability Act. Can you just give us a few- Yeah, so, uh, so the NIST framework actually came out of the 2020 uh, National Defense Authorization Act uh, directed and this was, which sits in the Commerce Department uh, mm -hmm. to start putting together a framework for, I think specifically the one they've been working on right now has been you know, discriminatory bias in automated decision systems, but my understanding is they're gonna do more like this. Um, and it's great, you know, they're, they're not regulation. They are very much just sort of standards, but even that's a little squishy, um, but they do have a lot of input and stakeholder groups, uh, which I know Deb and Mona have, <laughs> are very aware of. So that's, that's a great, thing to have. And then the Algorithm Accountability Act um, is a Senator Wyden, Booker, and Representative Clark's bill um, that offers a very detailed way to do algorithmic audits and directs the FTC to actually do a rulemaking process to spell that out even further. Um, and really just would mandate that all companies covered by the FTC, which is a pretty broad jurisdiction, but does not include government uh, social services, automated decision systems, which I know Demlin have also done a lot of work on as have I, um, but still is quite broad. Um, and it would mandate that all of those companies have to do these assessments. It doesn't go much further than that, but it is a great sort of starting, you have to do them, they have to be good, they have to meet this standard. And those um, would be, to use Deb's framework, those would be internal audits. Yes, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. Um, the FTC can at any time sort of like check <laughs> and make sure you're doing them, um, but that's really where it, where it stops. Um, and so that's where, that's kind of the center. And then I think policymakers need to think about the spokes, right, so the specific context. And that's really where Congressman Trahan has been doing a fair amount of work. So first, we uh, put out an EdTech staff draft last summer, um, and it looks at, you know, AI is being used in the classroom right now. Uh, it's being used to make critical, what I would consider critical decisions. So predicting if someone's cheating on a high profile exam, um, predicting if someone's going to have future success in AP classes. Um, these are the types of things I want audited. <laughs> I think most of us would, um, and especially if they're being used with taxpayer dollars. Um, but what else do we want to require here? So I would argue, you know, if a 
companies making a claim that their AI is going to contribute to learning outcomes. I think that you have to be monitoring that too. I would like to see a little bit of disclosures and assessments and how they're doing that. We've been doing oversight of curriculum for a long time. Why wouldn't you do that at EdTech? So that's where I think you take this core, you add a little bit of additional disclosure. And then additionally, who needs to see it, right? And getting to the internal external audit. I would argue some kind of task force at the FTC and Department of Ed probably should be able to do maybe either random audits or audits of the largest platforms. I think there's a couple ways you could structure that, um, but they should be able to take a look. And then additionally, I think some kind of summary statement of what's in these audits probably needs to be provided to, to educators, especially when you consider the way education policy kind of happens in this country. You've got kind of the federal level and then a lot of it, really the, the decision of what gets used in the classroom is done on the local level. So there needs to be some sort of communication happening there. Um, so that's just like one sort of context to think about moving off of the core. And then the other one the council has done a lot of work on has been social media. So uh, in March, she introduced the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act, which um, includes a whole provision for risk assessments, risk mitigation, and independent audits. Within that risk mitigation framework, and it is, it is broad, it's broader than algorithms, right? It's thinking about the whole safety processes of these companies and their products and product design. But it does specifically call out the fact that these <laughs> products contain algorithms, right? Algorithms used to flag hate speech, election disinfo, child pornography. Um, you've got algorithms obviously deciding personal recommendations, um, things like what, how the news feed is functioning. That relies on a lot of personal data. So there's also kind of a privacy data rights element there, which is interesting. And then of course there's ad targeting, which we know can be discriminatory. So you've got a lot of algorithms in there that the bill calls out for them to be audited. And then again, that's where you'd want to turn to the NIST frameworks, to the provisions and algorithms. Yeah. So you're not repeating those, you're just moving them into this context. Um, and then it's also worth mentioning that there, that's a place where it's really important to have an independent so. audit, so. right? Because you are talking about content. And that means that the government's probably not going to be the best auditor, or at least shouldn't be the only auditor, mm -hmm. right? That's a place we really do want a true independent audit. Mm -hmm. So we do include language there for the large platforms to have that. So it's just really interesting and I think important to think about kind of the hub and the spoke and to really ask the important mm -hmm. questions of like additional disclosures. Where do we draw bright lines, right? So where do we say XYZ tech cannot be used in XYZ situation, facial rec in the classroom, right? Where do we draw bright lines? Um, and then who do we think about who the auditor needs to be? Just has one follow-up, and then I know Mona has has a question too. Um, it, sort of when you, as a policymaker, when you're imagining um, audit systems, to what extent are you really drawing on the legacy and the history of sort of financial audits um, and that and the development of independent um, and basically consensual internationally an international consensus on what those audit standards should be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting model. I know Mona's done more work on this, so I'll definitely let her fill in. But I think what I will say is, I think we definitely, what I see when I look at that space is sort of this independent audit space. And independent maybe not the best word because industry associations are part of it, but you know, it's uh, outside of government. And then you've got government kind of setting the rules and there's this constant back and forth, right? So you've got the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, which oversees the CPA, which we... You know, most Americans, even if you're not in that space, you understand that CPA means you've taken a lot of tests, you've taken a lot of classes, you know how to follow the laws, but there's laws, 
right? That's really important. <laughs> so, so the laws are put in place. You now have this certified auditor that knows how to follow them. But then you've got this back and forth where, you know, come the Enron incidents of the early 2000s, Congress has to respond. And they respond with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and they add additional mandates and additional kind of rules around the way audits are done. I think it's really safe for us to assume we're going to have that back and forth here too. And I think that's okay. <laughs> I think it's what we want, right? Just start doing them. Let's see what happens. Let's course correct as needed. So I, I think that ebb and flow is what I really appreciate about the financial sector and trying to learn as much as we can from that. Yep. Mona? Yeah, thank you. I'm going to you know, I'm, I'm, I have the typical, you know, conference, you know, a comment and a question. <laughs> um, so I I just want to kind of underscore what, what Anna just said and, and also look back to, to Deb's opening remarks, which is, that, again, as a sociologist, I'm very interested in understanding what are the existing social and professional practices that we can meaningfully focus on to, you know, integrate these compliance and new audit cultures really without them having to be top down because we already know from, you know, social science research that social change is more likely to occur when we kind of expand meaning rather than rapidly change that. So I think that's very important. And I really firmly believe that as we move forward with this audit agenda, we need to more kind of forcefully integrate the professions and kind of professional associations and think about that. And I think that's later on the agenda for for this conversation. But um, I want to pick up on something that, that Anna also just mentioned, which is the question, how do we actually um, meaningfully um, make information from these audits available as part of this larger agenda of social change that we're after, right? And kind of a question I, I have a little bit for Deb here is, can we think about interoperability here? What, what are the kind of languages? What are the kind of socio-technical bits of information that we might want to standardize for audits so that, you know, audits become, you know, we have, we have a kind of whole landscape of audits that are actually accessible, not just to regulators and respective industries, but, but perhaps the public, right? Because that's the ultimate goal is, I think, in parts is to make this a demo, you know, democratic effort. And I think, I think that, um, you know, legibility is, is really important here. And, and we talk about this a lot, right? We all want these audits, the outcomes of these audits to be publicly available, what, but what does that actually mean? So I don't know, Deb, maybe you've, you've, you've thought on this. If not, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot here. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. Uh, actually, this is the, the crux of my um, of my research right now. And, and I think uh, early on as well is sort of this question of, well, um, you know, even if we, I, I think there's like two tasks with an audit. There's, there's one, you want to make sure that you're doing a very valid evaluation, you know, setting up the, uh, you know, the, the, the expectations, articulating the expectations, formalizing those expectations, and then um, being able to sort of examine the deployed system and make that comparison and sort of formalize that gap between what the system is doing and what um, the auditor expected it to do. Um, that's like one really big important task. The second important task is related to the sort of second part of the definition I was, I was mentioning earlier. Of, well, how do you take this evaluation and this assessment and actually have that feed into accountability outcomes. So how does that feed into either like a product change or a product recall? Or how does that feed into like a public campaign? Or how does that inform standards? Or how does that inform a regulatory change? Um, and I think that that second question is uh, super important and has been sort of the focus of a lot of my research for the last year. I think I've learned a lot from looking at other 
uh, other audit systems. So other industries where audits are quite common. So this is like transportation, um, medicine. Uh, you mentioned finance, where um, I, I definitely think there's been a lot of back and forth in terms of what's happened in that industry. And it's really shifted um, the sort of validity of the audits, but also how much the audits factor into accountability um, uh, outcomes. So you mentioned um, SOX audits, which are sort of, uh, you know, post Enron, um, there were a bunch of rules that were introduced. And a lot of those rules were actually not necessarily just about, you know, requirements in terms of, you know, how you evaluate uh, you know, the quality of the financial reporting from these systems. But a lot of those rules were actually around, you know, consequences from these audits. So a lot of those rules were transparency rules. One was, you know, now if you, you're an auditor and you do an audit report of a, like a financial audit report, you have, to, you have to submit that to the EDGAR database. And the SEC is now monitoring <laughs> what the outcomes of your report are. And, and that EDGAR database isn't publicly available, but it's, it's, available, it's available upon request. And there's sort of like a... a, a a mediated transparency regime that they have in finance where um, the audit results are accessible uh, in a way and through a process, a vetting process of like, if you're a valid, you know, if you're an actor that's sort of been approved um, uh, under certain criteria, then you can see, you know, how well these systems are doing. For public, publicly traded companies, now they have to make their financial reports public. <laughs> um, and there's all of these rules that were brought in. And what we realized was those rules were not just rules around, and I think this is an interesting contrast in my perspective to the conversation right now in the algorithmic auditing space. So if you look at like ICOs, um, like the Information Commissioner Office in the UK and their like auditability guidelines, or even if you look at the Algorithmic Accountability Act, there's a lot of focus on what is in the audit. Like, are we gonna audit for bias? Are we gonna, even if you look at New York's hiring, um, uh, you know, the, the, the new sort of uh, bill that came out of uh, New York City, uh, City Council recently, the focus is on, you know, is this a, like, this is a biased audit? How are we get like the details of the audit content itself? And I think that that is very valid and definitely a locus of discussion. Um, but when you look at sort of other industries and, um, uh, you know, where regulation has really shifted accountability outcomes, when I say accountability outcomes, I mean, you know, bad actors get punished, <laughs> good actors get rewarded. Um, uh, a lot of those interventions are actually not know so much about the details of the evaluation, but also around all these other factors that relate to, you know, uh, the consequences of the audit and 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 mandating, you know, like, you know, a response time, for example, that's another sort of feature that we noticed across different industries is they'll mandate that the company has to respond by a particular time, or there's like other consequences or additional fines. Um, they'll mandate sort of making the, the report, the audit report, like public or visible in some way. Um, they also mandate other things in terms of not just accountability on the like corporate response side, but also um, setting up structures of accountability for like the auditors themselves. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, we have regulations and guidelines and best practice sort of restrictions for auditors in the finance space and in the medical space, uh, the medical device space. Why don't we have anything like that for algorithmic auditors? Anyone can call themselves an algorithmic auditor right now. Um, and, and that could satisfy like, you know, uh, the Digital Services Act uh, uh, sort of mandate to hire an independent audit. You can just take anyone and, and call them an auditor and satisfy that requirement. So it's part of uh, ensuring accountability to make sure that we have, you know, uh, some kind of validation, certification, accreditation process for auditors as well. So I, I think there's a lot of um, 
these details that are now kind of revealing themselves in these other audit systems and and emerging as like important considerations for us um, uh, in in the algorithmic accountability context. Yeah. And I'm like happy to like list more, (laughs) Um, but I don't want to take up too much time as well. We we definitely, uh, me and and Dan have a paper coming up at AIES where we, uh, we pretty much look at all these other audit systems and we highlight some of the patterns that we notice and we try to connect that to practices that happen in these other uh, communities. I'll say like the sort of top three practices is like one is like there's some kind of oversight board um, in the sense of, uh, you know, there's some kind of uh, like in, in, in finance and in, in transportation, there's 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 some kind of, uh, you know, uh, professional society or professional standards for auditors. And that's something that we have not yet established or set up in this algorithmic accountability space. Another sort of second point that was pretty resonant is the existence of like an incident reporting database where um, we don't really have uh, any way for harms discovery to happen in the algorithmic context. If someone has a complaint about an algorithmic deployment, there's no like a- avenue for them to communicate with regulators or even communicate with a broader ecosystem of auditors. Um, uh, so the existence of like an incident reporting database um, uh, and similarly sort of like registering audits in some kind of accessible database uh, similar to Edgar like that's not something that we do we don't really have those like transparency regimes um, and then the sort of uh, uh, final point that we had made was the the point I was making around some of these like post audit measures of uh, you know legislation right now I think the DSA does this a little bit of like you know the companies have to respond within I think it was 90 days or 180 days or something but we don't really we haven't really fleshed out the details of what does it actually mean? What kind of corporate responses are we expecting to these audits? And are there ways in which we can enforce that through uh, like a regulatory mandate of like, you know, the company actually has to pay attention or respond in this particular way to an audit outcome. So that's like sort of the third thing. And I think like to your point, I do think transparency does help a lot with that, Um, especially in our space where um, people do pay attention, especially, you know, um, online platform audits in particular, users are like the users are uh, the public, right? So when there's an audit of, let's say like Facebook's algorithm, and let's say that public, that, that audit was made, the audit results were made public without the interference of Facebook, for example, either to like quell the, quell the, 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 the severity of the, of the, you know, the audit results or, or sort of like censored in some way, let's say you, you actually got full access to the audit results. Even if Facebook did not take direct action in response to that audit report, um, the public does a really good job. Uh, the public and also institutions that uh, mobilize the public, like the ACLU, they do a really good job coordinating um, sort of these campaigns that end up leading to accountability outcomes regardless. So I, I do think your point around making things public and thinking about post-audit actions um, is, is totally in line with the kind of research we're doing and the, the results we have there as well. Um, so yeah, all this to say that there's there's things happening in other audit spaces that we can definitely learn from to go from just like a really good evaluation to an evaluation that actually holds weight in terms of broader accountability outcomes. Wow, Deb. <laughs> Sorry, that was so a lot of words. I think just doing my moderator job, I'm going to list up just a, a couple of things Maybe one thing from what you said and one thing from what Anna said, and then Mona, I want you to to sort of reflect and respond um, and then we can take it from there. Okay, so 
So Deb, um, you know, when you talk about um, you, whether or not the audit, the audit object has any part has participated or not, I mean, in some ways, unless it's a sort of scraping exercise or a, you know, sock puppet account or GDPR data, um, unless those are the sources of, of uh, or the inputs for the audit, there's going to have to be some cooperation. And I think, um, you know, Anna has laid out kind of different audiences that might have different amounts of access, right, to, to um, the underlying data and the systems. And um, which is, you know, sort of something that um, is interesting to pursue, and you can sort of see the beginnings of that in some of the in the AI Act um, in in the EU and what the UK is doing. Um, Anna, you also in your your hub and spoke template. I think you know another way to think about that is is we can think of it a, a kind of overarching regulation that deals with AI audits, and then we can think of the verticals. Um, and so, and this goes to qualifications that would be needed to conduct the audit. Um, and so, you know, if we think about AI or algorithmic audits writ large, it would, it's actually very difficult to think about what qualifications would be necessary because they're, you know, see obviously technical qualifications, but then they also might be, and, you know, people are starting to say, everybody needs to bring on philosophers and arts and science you know, humanities majors, because, you know, you have to be able to understand, um, first of all, surfacing harms discovery, which is a great, you know, it's a great term, um, you know, who is in the best position to audit that that has been done appropriately. When I think about the Frances Haugen testimony, right, when she said algorithmic harms were discovered, they were surfaced, and then the corporate structure and the incentive structure was such that they were batted away, that is an object for audit, right? Is to see how that works. And that's a very different kind of qualification than someone who's who's looking at code. And so, um, and then the verticals, if we're talking about healthcare, education, policing, right? So understanding those systems and the human technical interface it might be different in each of those verticals. And so I sort of throw this over to you, Mona, as this big like socio-technical stew when we think about qualifications and also just where responsibility, governance responsibility, either in the company or outside for an external audit um, uh, for policymakers or civil society, how do we think about those things? Yeah, thanks, Alan. That's a big question. Um, and I'm, I just wanna kind of offer my thoughts and I'd be very, very curious to hear from Anna and Deb as well. So I think, First and foremost, we need to have a base, a shared baseline understanding of what an audit should do. What is the, you know, very basic social process that we're actually trying to implement here? Is it, you know, for safety? You know, what what is the idea behind it? Um, and there's a there's a ton of, you know, not a ton, but there's a, a fair bit of balls in the air with regards to AI audits specifically. So I think it's very important to establish that first, because as you said, Ellen, if we talk about, you know, stakeholder involvement and different kinds of expertise, I think we do need to have a shared understanding what an audit is and, and what it is not, right? It's, it's probably not an impact assessment, which I would think is something that happens perhaps pre-deployment, Right, and it's maybe more internal. So I do think there's a lot of work that we still need to do with getting on the same page here. Um, then I do think that um, 
will end up in a situation, and I don't think that is a bad thing, where where the actual audits, you know, the 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 way in which they are being deployed is vertical specific, and not only vertical specific, but professional practice specific. The way in which, you know, a specific, let's say, risk assessment system in the emergency room is used by nurses will be very different from the way in which, uh, you know, a computer vision technology uh, system is used to assist radiologists, right? So there, there's, there's different ways in which these systems, A, work purely on a technical basis, but also are slotted into existing social and professional practices in how they're um, meanings are interpreted, right? Um, and and we need to make very we need to be very careful not to impose any kind of assumptions around how they're being used, which could water down actual good audits, right? You know, basically buying into the idea that one AI system is used by nurses in this one very prescribed way, which could be very different from the way in which is actually being used. And the notion of professional discretion plays a really important role here. And, and we kind of need to find um, when we actually, you know, once we have a, a sort of baseline definition of what audits should do, then get to a place where we need to think about how do we actually enact those in these verticals and with these different professional practices in mind. And I think because AI systems are contextual, AI audits will be too, which is why I kind of asked this question about interoperability of um, outputs or outcomes of AI audits to Deb, right? Because we then need to loop back to the macro level. We kind of need to, to get to a circular kind of process here. And I think that's, that's where the rubber hits the road, um, ultimately. I don't know if I can respond quickly. Um, yeah, I was gonna say I I think that that's that's definitely um, uh, you know an approach to 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 making sure that you know there's because I, I think the other thing the other sort of value especially about sort of like third party and external audits is um, the fact that you have more eyes on the system right you have more perspectives looking at the same artifact and that just reveals different harms and different issues, you know, you, you have effectively evaluators asking new questions about the system that really challenge the narratives brought forth by the companies about how well that system is working and what that system is doing. And I think that is inherently the value of audit. So the idea of, you know, sharing information about the audit result with a broader ecosystem of people or engaging a greater kind of like diversity of, of, of participants in the audit sort of practice makes makes a lot of sense as 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 a way to really increase the number of uh you know the the, the perspectives analyzing the artifact and then really uh you know I helped help to identify more issues by looking at it from different angles. I think the the challenge like the sort of practical challenge of of you know making the audit the auditing practice more accessible or um you know releasing audit results for outside scrutiny is that not all auditors, and this is really like something that we learned looking at other communities as well, is not all auditors actually necessarily have the sort of best intent. You can have, uh, there have been situations in other industries of, uh, you know, uh, individuals representing, you know, uh, like competitors within the same industry operating or standing in as auditors and then not responsibly handling the information provided to them um, uh, and sort of scrutinizing the system with the purpose of, you know, uh, uh, dealing with a competitor unethically. So I, I, there's there's been cases of that. And I think as a result of that, um, there's kind of like a wariness 
in, in government of just making it com completely open uh, to the public or making uh, everyone kind of eligible to participate as an auditor. And it seems like the approach that um, has been taken in at least a, a few industries has just been having some kind of oversight over the audit population, the auditor population themselves to say like, not everyone can call themselves an auditor, um, especially if an auditor gets privileged access to a particular product. Uh, there's some kind of vetting process. We have to make sure that you're actually independent of you know, the company and any competitors of that company. We have to actually make sure that you're qualified uh, to ask the questions that uh, you're in a position to ask or that would be like beneficial for accountability for you to ask. Um, so I think that, the, you know, that, that, inter that, that intervention, I'm not sure if it's the ideal one, but it, it's sort of the, the current kind of standard around, um, you know, just having sort of vetted access or having some kind of, I, cause I think your, your vision is sort of like a, a, a more kind of absolute, I'm, I'm, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are too, of like, uh, you know, uh, dampening the vision from some like from a more absolute like everyone in the public kind of has access to this and has an ability to to contribute to this versus a more restricted space of uh, you know after some kind of vetting after some kind of certification then those that are sort of qualified uh, will have access because they're I think that the, the sort of uh, to play devil's advocate on my own point the sort of down uh, you know downside of of um, having an oversight board and having a vetting process is well, how do you determine what these qualifications are? Are there details of those qualifications that might um, exclude, you know, the parties that need to participate in this the most, um, uh, especially if they're coming from like a marginalized population that might not be, it might not be as easy for them to get certification as, as another group. Uh, so I think there is like nuance to that proposal of having some kind of auditor oversight or auditor practice oversight. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what you think about just like restricting the vision of like, absolute transparency or absolute interoperability to something that is a little bit more uh, uh, gated or vetted or guarded? Um, well, I know, I, I think Mona has thoughts on that, but I want to, um, I just want to, just want to pivot a little bit and move from qualifications to a question actually that we got in the Q&A that's also a question I have and I think has been raised by all of you which is we recognize that algorithms, many algorithms at least, are a, a tremendously um, dynamic process, right? And so when Elon Musk said, um, you know, we want, we want, I'm going to get in there and we're going to like open up the code for Twitter, there was sort of, you know, appreciation in the transparency community followed by, well, wait a minute, there isn't like, what does that even mean? What is that, the code, which code? Like one second's code or the next second's code? Or um, so, and and who, who's, who can understand it, right? So who is it useful for? Um, and so, but, but just sticking on this dynamism point, we've got dynamic processes, and then we've got products which are in, deployed and then jiggered and re-optimized and redeployed and humans in the loop who may be overriding the algorithm or, you know, so, um, so the question was, um, Mona mentioned that audits are not just about thinking of the life cycle of one product or one system. How do you think about drawing the boundaries of where an audit begins and ends, especially for identifying unintended or unexpected impacts? And maybe, Anna, you can start because, the, you know, the Algorithmic Accountability Act, like, definitely has a view about this. Um, yeah, so maybe I, I'll, 
I'll talk more about DeSosa's view on it, but they're, but they're, they're similar, right? It's this idea of like an ongoing, like this, this isn't like a one-time thing. We did our audit, we're good, right? These are ongoing. Have you as a company or product team put in practices so you are ongoingly monitoring the risk, whether it be discrimination, whether it be, you know, accessibility or various other harms, like have you assessed your risks and then have you put in practices and as new risks emerge, are you putting in practices? And then are you doing scenario planning, right? So one of uh, the way, you know, the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act handles this is, you know, you have your risk assessment. And then one of the top mitigation things you need to do and document is scenario planning, right? Think about how your product's gonna be misused or how it could go wrong and document how what you're doing right now <laughs> to prepare for that. Um, in the social media context, obviously that, you know, we're thinking about influence operations, elections, things like that, but you can imagine it in, in every other sector as well. So I do definitely think it's uh, it's not meant to be a com compliance checkbox tool. It really is meant to be like an active ongoing thing. I think that's true in the Algorithm Accountability Act as, as well, is put these processes in place. And I think you see it in companies as well. So you've got like Arthur AI and tools of that nature where they're supposed to be kind of ongoingly monitoring various things. And so you can discuss kind of putting those types of processes in place. And I know there, there are other tools like that. Um, so I think that's what we're, what we're trying to push for in this legislation. Now, obviously legislation is like legal text. The details get kind of worked out further down the line. Um, I'll just really quickly circle back to um, this discussion of like expertise verticals. I think, you know, we see this with CPAs as well, right? Like a lot of CPAs are experts in like nonprofit <laughs> finances or, you know, like corporate taxes and corporate disclosures. So I think it's totally reasonable to expect that. Um, and I actually think one area that doesn't get discussed a lot, so I'll say it to this community, is, you know, the antitrust bills are moving pretty quickly. Uh, and for reference, I used to, to work for Congressman Cicilline. Um, Self-preferencing is, you know, basically an algorithm deciding that one set needs to be favored over another. So Amazon's algorithm favoring Amazon Basics products for the buy box. Um, in order to comply with these new self-preferencing laws, I, I think it's reasonable to assume these types of audits, at least internal, and if they're smart, these <laughs> big tech companies are smart, will we'll turn to external audits. So just something to put on your radar too, that like there are so many subfields we can see this. Thanks. Uh, Mona, did you wanna come in on the qualifications point? I think, yeah. Just to underscore that, I think that expertise is extremely important, and it is important that people who, you know, individuals or communities of practice who represent um, lived experience have, you know, are have some accountability relationship to the community that they're representing. Um, why am I flagging this? Um, Deb and Anna both talked about harms, and I think what we really need to keep in mind is that um, the basic social problem that we have or the basic problem that we have with algorithmic harm is we don't necessarily are able to see it until it occurs at least that's what we that we that we hear from the tech community right and so it but we know that it's more likely to occur along the existing fault lines of social stratification and the intersections thereof which means that those who are affected the most um, have the least resources to actually flag the harm. So we need a process by which we can anticipate these kinds of harms so that the labor of flagging harm is not on the side of those who are experiencing the harm, but those who are kind of causing it. And that is something that in my book 
needs to be firmly on the side of impact assessment, algorithmic impact assessment. So pre-deployment, we need to move beyond the social logic of using the public, using markets as a lab for testing, you know, how the algorithm will behave. That's one thing. So that's different from audit, right? Audit happens once it, it, it's a formal product that is in the market, that's being deployed and so on. With regards to when audits happen, I think there's different kinds of decisions that can be made here, right? One is timeline. Is there an update? Um, is there a new feature? Is there a new market that's being tapped into? There's like different kind of timelines that could be um, that could be uh, developed here. Um, with regards to professions, I think, you know, accreditation might be something interesting to think about here. The other thing that is really important to think about is, and I would say that as a sociologist, you know, what is actually the the, the social assumption and the calculative model that we're dealing with here. We're talking so much about the technology, right? But we can get at harm and we can get at, you know, disproportionate impact if we develop a model whereby we ask people, how do you think you're going to make money of this? Like, what's your business model? What is the basic economic or business idea here? And that's a very straightforward question that can help surface potential harms, right? If your basic idea is they got, that you're going to use personality as a proxy for job fit, that already points you in a very good direction with regards to what harms could possibly occur. So I think we need to work a little bit more on kind of the, on that side of both algorithmic impacts and, and audits. And, and transparency, some of that is, yeah. Um, all right, let me move to another question, which takes us to Europe. Um, you know, in so much of, of um, AI governance, Europe is out ahead, and the things we see um, being proposed in Congress are really sort of catch up to where, um, to where they are. And so this question is about the DSA. Somewhat directed at you, Deb, um, what is your opinion on the DSA? Um, is this sort of, and the structure is kind of like the Algorithmic Accountability Act where you're doing um, self-assessment, the companies are doing, the platforms in this case are doing self-assessments, risk assessments, um, assessments of their risk mitigation strategies. And then these, audits are reported to the EU, which then does, which then looks at them. Um, what's your opinion about this? Uh, and would this even be possible, this EU audit, without knowing what kind of data the platforms themselves have? I'll just say for myself, um, I think it's, you know, very sort of partial and baby steps, maybe a necessary first baby step. But, um, you know, what's missing from this, first of all, is any kind of standards by which the companies are going to audit themselves, also kind of standardized reporting so that they are, um, uh, you know, comparable and, and can be easily kind of digested by outsiders. Um, it, it reminds me, it's a little bit like a transparency report plus. And so Mona, the point about like, where does transparency end, transparency reporting and auditing, accountability auditing begin? Um, the platforms all have a lot of transparency reporting, but I'm sure we've all been among critics to to um, poke holes in them and say, well, why aren't you telling us this, that, or the other thing? I think this is a little bit susceptible to the same kinds of problems, but I, Deb, what do you think? 
Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about the DSA. <laughs> and, um, I think uh, I, I think a lot of what your comments were were in reference to Article 28, which is sort of the the sort of internal audit requirement. And I think, um, uh, yeah, it, for me, it it really is like the analogy to the transporting the the trans uh, the transparency reporting conversation happening in the states right now. Of um, you know, these companies need to just reveal information about how well their systems work. I think um, I I'm always very skeptical around just how far you can go with, um, you know, depending on internal accounts of, you know, performance or, or risk. Um, I do think, uh, well, I, I think on one hand, uh, providing strict guidance in terms of the format and the requirements of such internal audit like report outcomes um, makes a lot of sense in terms of forcing these companies to reveal certain types of information. But there's already kind of been precedent, especially with Facebook, of them really just miscommunicating or intentionally obscuring some of the details of their system through kind of identifying loopholes and in, in, uh, you know what they can or can't say, and thus kind of reporting kind of incomplete accounts of of the level of risk of their system. So I found that that. That's um, and you kind of rightfully pointed out, like if there's stricter guidelines around what they should be saying, if there's some level of oversight, then that might become easier. But I think that's the big risk of just purely depending on internal accounts is that um, these companies are not always fully honest or complete in their um, in their uh, in their reporting of what's going on on the inside of their systems. Um, I think there's a, there's an Article 31, which I'm sure uh, you know whoever posted this probably is aware of the level of debate around it, where it's talking about uh, providing external auditors with access to the systems to kind of come up with independent accounts of how well that system is working. You know, for obvious reasons, it seems like a great idea of like yes, like we can we don't have to depend on the internal accounts. We can also bring in external accounts for certain cases or allow researchers to come in and engage. I think there's already been um, you know there's been an open letter from uh, different groups such as Algorithm Watch um, and um, I think Human Rights Watch as well. There's been a couple of groups. Uh, Access Now might have also commented on this of how restrictive the current qualification section of that um, article is where it's just restricted to academic researchers, whereas you have a lot of civil society groups, you have a lot of law firms, you have a lot of um, just other entities that participate in the external audit process. Um, uh, So they found that that article was restrictive, although the idea of access to an external party as part of like an independent oversight mechanism, I think is something that a lot of external auditors found to be an exciting prospect um, and a good counterbalance in addition to this sort of internal reporting out, you know, uh, a caveat in the DSA. So I think that that's, that's a lot of my opinion about the DSA is that it, I think it was it was one of the first instances I saw of third-party audit, external auditors being given, like, you know, in, in this case, specifically academic researchers being given an, uh, an, an avenue to access the system, which is really one of the biggest roadblocks for external auditing. Um, but I think there's definitely a lot more that could be discussed with respect to the details of what those qualifications were for those external auditors um, and, and expanding that definition of participants to really encompass those um, working on this. Um, I think the other thing as well is um, uh, with the internal accountability uh, clauses, uh, you know, closing some loopholes that companies have already proven that they would uh, take advantage of. So in the DSA, there's some loopholes around not reporting things that might compromise, you know, um, 
proprietary knowledge or um, uh, you know trade secrets, and that's definitely a loophole that companies are going to take. <laughs> um, uh, so I think that that's de there's definitely a, been a lot of discourse on that end as well of uh, with internal audits and and depending or relying on reporting out uh, you know uh, these in terms of these transparency reports. Uh, how can we make it so that those there's integrity to those reports and we can actually depend on them? Uh, the final point I'm going to make about the DSA and sort of conversations I've had about that in general is there seems to be a lot of confidence in like regulatory capacity to one, assess these transparency reports and to maybe even mediate uh, or facilitate their own kind of external investigations into the performance of these systems. And I'm a little bit more skeptical than the DSA uh, kind of working group about just the um, capacity that regulators have uh, to, to do some of that work themselves um, versus relying on a, maybe a broader ecosystem of, of audit, like third party external audit participants to engage in that practice. So Mona mentioned a couple of times this idea of, well, if a company is submitting their, uh, you know, internal risk assessment to the regulator, why not make that public? Or why not make that accessible to a third party upon request, like a vetted third party upon request? Those are ideas that I think are worth definitely thinking a little bit more about is why depend completely on the regulator to sort of vet the quality of these internal audits uh, when you could actually make those accessible. And that's sort of another way to increase third party participation. Thank you. Um, Deb, so we have four minutes, and I know Anna has something to say. And then know, I've done some work on the DSA. <laughs> um, if you're following the DSA, please look at the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act. Um, please, 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 please. Uh, it is an attempt at a U.S. approach to this problem and, and really strengthens a lot of the holes that Deborah just pointed out, mostly because the United States, just within our First Amendment context, this is going to have to be our approach, right? Like deep transparency with independent audits, a separation from government, which is, you know, it's just realistically the approach we're going to have to strive for. And even then it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a trip. Um, but, you know, so we definitely took the approach of, you know, the similar audit, you know, we looked at the language, we added some additional things and then mandating that all the large public platforms and, you know, there's some back and forth on if you should go them further than that, get an independent audit um, FTC can do rulemaking on like what that looks like, you know, like what count, counts as independence. Um, and that the other thing is that the FTC will be able to do rulemaking both on how those auditors should get secure access to the data so they can actually get raw data. So if they want to audit the algorithms that are used through all those processes, they'd be able to get the raw data they needed to do that, along with 40 pages where we spell out essentially what's in Article 31, uh, which is researcher and civil society access to data in a way that is secure, you know, limits uh, law enforcement access. I mean, there's so many issues that come up, uh, especially in a country that doesn't have a comprehensive privacy law. Um, but the idea is to have kind of these multiple types of checks on what the platforms are doing. So both this independent auditor that's looking over the risk assessment and then this, you know, set of civil society and researchers. The other thing I'll mention is that the audits do go back to the FTC, who then summarizes and makes a public version available. Um, and this approach is, it's, the trade secrets is one thing. I think that gets talked about a lot. Um, and the way DeSoto is written, it trusts the FTC, who is also in charge of the markets and competition, to actually determine what a trade secret is, not the companies. But also national security is the other thing, too. So you have to remember, right, these platforms are used to weaponize disinfo, um, especially Russia and China and robots. And, right? it's, it's a legitimate national concern, 
security concern. And so there are some things you wouldn't want to make public for that reason too. And we worked really closely with a lot of national security experts and Adam Schiff is, is one of the co-leads on the bill um, to, to think about that as well, which I think gets lost. Please look at it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Congresswoman Trahan, this bill is, I think, the last word on, on this topic so far in the U.S. So we'll, we'll put a link to the bill um, when we send this out. Mona, do you want the last word? Oh, my God, the last word um, was, you know, devil's advocate. I'm going to ask the big so what question, which is if we, you know, kind of acknowledge that these kinds of systems have become social infrastructure, right? They, they kind of really profoundly affect how we organize and hold together society. What if we, you know, find that one system or a part of a system so profoundly, um, you know, infringes on, on civil rights um, and so on, what, what do we do? Are we gonna, can we shut it down? And the way in which I, the why, why I'm asking is, is, you know, when we when we have a restaurant that doesn't comply with, you know, food safety standards, we can close the restaurant. Can we close, can we close down an AI system, an algorithmic system or a part of it? So I would really encourage policymakers, industry, you know, my community, researchers to think about what's, you know, once we've got the audit figured out, what's what's on the other side, right? What, how can we actually act upon? That gets us into the spokes of substantive, of substantive law for each of these areas. Yes. Like, yeah. Can I just really, really quick, I'm so sorry. Uh, I don't know if this community has seen the bipartisan staff draft privacy bill that's been circulating. Um, it includes, it would mandate algorithmic audits. Uh, and it also, to Mona's the most recent point, would mandate uh, you know, that you follow discrimination law in data processing. It's bold. Look at it for sure. Um, it's uh, you know, it's bipartisan and somewhat bicameral. Uh, so definitely worth taking seriously. You know, also. Thanks. All right. We have lots of things to look at, um, lots of big questions to ponder. Um, and I want to thank all of you so much for joining us. Take care, everybody. Thank you, so much. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to Brandon Silverman and the German Marshall Fund. And thank you for listening. Policy Press.